Okay. Testing, can you hear me now? Yeah, now. yeah. Okay, much better. Perfect. All right, so let's go ahead and kick this thing off. Um, so today is, and obviously, uh, Frank, if you have things you want to add or whatever else, um, great. But I want to start super high level with what wholesaling is today and then really work our way into specifically, obviously, how we do it um, in general. And so for starters, um, you know, I guess let's go ahead and introduce ourselves and we can kind of dive in. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of take us through a little bit of a journey and then we can just kind of see wherever it takes us here. So, um, obviously my name is Reed Clenahan. I'm i I'm an investor. I'm an operator. Uh, generally speaking, uh, Frank here is uh, a wholesaler. And so today we're, we're actually going to be speaking, um, specifically around, uh, wholesaling, uh, for those of you that are new to it, for those of you that have done it before, maybe in a different capacity, but Frank, do you want to introduce yourself before we dive in? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Frank Bell, and I'm the president of Evelocity Properties. I'm a real estate wholesaler. I specialize in subject to transactions and creative finance and seller financing and hybrid situations of complex creative deals, basically. And um, yeah, I'm glad to be here today. Awesome. Thanks for that. And so, so yeah, let's, um, let's start super high level. What is wholesaling? How did you get into it? Um, I want to talk about it from a traditional cash sense first and how people think about those things. What are, what's still working out there, if anything, from a cash perspective, and then obviously work into your experience. So let's start there. So what is wholesaling and kind of how did you get into it, Frank? Yeah. So I started wholesaling back in 2000, I think it was six or seven, maybe. I think it was six, 2006. 
so it was right before the financial crisis and um you know i just started by doing it basically and learning the hard way school of hard knocks i, I guess you could say and um it, it at the time there was you know it was a different market a different situation there was a lot of short sales back then that we were doing and um and, and at that point it was all i wasn't doing subject two back then i was doing all cash transactions so all of, all of my deals were cash deals um and it, it, i've you know just recently over the last couple of years um started to focus more on uh subject to creative finance seller financing and I mean, obviously, that's a function of it having a lot of merit and value with the interest rate environment the way it is. Um, that hasn't always been the case. You know, when interest rates were two or three percent, um, seller financing wasn't as important, right? Not that it wasn't as important then, but it's extremely important now. And so almost 90 percent of my deals, 95 percent of my deals are seller finance, uh, subject to creative finance hybrid situations. Let's let's talk about the the buyer and that that sort of scenario, right? So the idea with you know wholesaling is you're of course, um, let's, in the traditional sense, you're getting a cash deal back in the day when that was like the main thing uh, under contract. And so if a deal, I mean for easy numbers, is a hundred thousand dollars is you know the total uh, you know what something would be worth. You're looking to of course get it maybe sixty fifty cents on the dollar, uh, whatever else, which Back then with wholesaling and the cost of materials, the cost of lending, you could still really make that work, right? So you're trying to find something, generally speaking, right? Less than 70% of ARV, people are factoring in how much it's gonna cost them. And when I say things like ARV, right? That's after repair value. So I bought it, it was worth this much. I bought it for this much. Uh, I put this much into it, had this much on lending, and then hopefully I made uh, something on the back end, right? And so that was the traditional way people thought of wholesaling, right? And so can you can we walk through a little bit of well, yeah, um, I mean, some of that? I hear yeah. this buy box often, the seventy cents on the dollar buy box. I don't, I don't live in a box, right? So mm -hmm. I've never like only wholesale deals inside of seventy cents on the dollar. I've sold, I've wholesale deals at ninety, ninety-five cents on the dollar. I mean, if it's a brand new house in a perfect neighborhood that's highly sought after, and you can get it for a discount, you could wholesale it. Right. So the 70 percent buy box is highly relative. Right. And, you know, it, it, wholesaling is basically finding a good opportunity and locking it up with a contract and then selling your interest to it. Um, so, yeah. But to answer your question, it was it's historically it's always mostly been cash deals. You take a contract to it at a discount. Right. Or with terms that are desirable. And then you sell your interest in that contract to a buyer that steps in and realizes that opportunity and they pay me a fee. And so basically I spend a lot of my time, you know, deal finding, uh, marketing. It's, it's a, it's, it's a marketing engine that drives deal flow for investors. Most investors that have, you know, a lot of money to spend or want to invest either, you know, one deal or two deals, maybe they're a doctor a lawyer, accountant, a dentist, whatever, and they don't have time to go out and pound the pavement and spend time on marketing and answer phone calls all day and negotiate and the nuances of it, even if they had had the time, you know, it's very, it's a very nuanced, uh, a profile of a person that's able to do that, that has, you know, a certain kind of temperament and, um, levels of confidence and things of this nature that, uh, that's even possible. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually extremely rare for someone to pursue wholesaling and successfully do it. 
on a regular basis. It's um, it's exceedingly rare, actually. Completely. Well, and and let's talk about the the kind of shift there that that I feel like it was it was widely known people could wholesale based on cash transactions generally for a fix and flipper. You're right. You totally can for let's just say you know ninety cents on the dollar. It doesn't <clears throat> maybe the deal doesn't need need much. Uh, but you're still finding a discount. You have a fee, but you found it for somebody and effectively it was a finder's fee. So you're, you're, you're out there bird dogging it. You're, you're finding it, you're tying it up, you're getting favorable terms. And so just to shift here. Uh, so obviously a lot of wholesaling has gone from cash transactions to, Hey, we're actually just looking for, for favorable terms. You know, uh, I'm sure there's probably several questions you go through with people when you're, you're talking with these things. You know, have you thought about listing with the realtor? Oh yeah, that's going to cost you 10, 12 cents off the top. Um, you know, I have thought about uh, holding on to it and renting it. Oh, it, it doesn't really cash flow as a long-term rental. Have you thought about doing this other thing? And then like inevitably what people are, are finding, right, <clears throat> is that, you know, if they, especially if they don't have any equity in these scenarios, the terms are really what sells it for them because it's more about them getting an outcome versus, uh, you know, you as a wholesaler trying to get 50 to 60 to 70 cents on the dollars. Like I can give you your price, but you got to work with me on terms. And so anything you want to dive into there as far as like, maybe, maybe you started there. I don't know. Did you start there and then from cash and, uh, or did you kind of work your way in there after just regular cash wholesale deals? I don't follow your question. Like the, when I'm speaking to a seller or the history of, of you. So did you start with going yeah. cash and then into this and then, yeah. Yeah. So all my deals initially were cash, right? For years, I only did cash deals and I did a lot. And I specialized at the time. It's interesting. There was a lot of short sale transactions that were occurring. So I didn't focus on at the time of trying to get equity from sellers. I actually also focused on low equity situations at the time. But I would go negotiate uh, reductions in mortgages with the with the bank to create equity, right? And so at that point, it was a lot of uh, managing paperwork and correspondence with lenders, making offers, meeting out. They do broker price opinions out at the properties, and then striking a deal with the lender to reduce the payoff amount to create equity. And so that was my go- specialty back then, right? And it's actually in some ways similar to what what's going on now because it was sellers with a low equity that need a solution. And we had it for them. And this was before, at the time, even realtors didn't know what a um, what a short sale was, right? They didn't know how to do it. They didn't even know it could be done. Um, and so obviously that market shifted and eventually it got to the point where you couldn't wholesale short sales. You had to just take them down. And so that kind of was just a phase. But I see a lot of, of similarities in that market and this market was subject to. Um, I see a lot of similarities in that regard. And and even to the point where, you know, you're starting to see more realtors become aware of what subject two is. The realtors are obviously getting pounded pretty hard by, you know, wholesalers and buyers that are looking for for deals uh, as subject two. And I would also add that, you know, in the last cycle with lenders, um, the initially they didn't have departments for uh, managing short sale offers. And I would often deal with directly with investors in the beginning that held a mortgage note, right? Well, eventually they created entire, um, you know, management arms in the servicing companies and within the lending departments that um, that specifically managed (coughs) the uh, short sale uh, negotiation process, right? And so um, I see these same things emerging right now with subject two, and I mean, and, and then. And part of this discussion is actually 
you know, what are the lenders, how are the lenders going to respond to this influx and saturation in the interest of, you know, seller finance subject to deals. And, you know, in, in response to that, I've, you know, I do a lot of structuring with the deals that I buy myself and that I wholesale to other investors uh, through the use of trusts and other creative contractual uh, and entity formation um, aspects to, to help protect, you know, not only through anonymity and, and um, you know, asset protection, but also to, to minim help mitigate or minimize the risk of the due on sale clause being called. Right. And it, mm. the due on sale clause hasn't been real issue until, well, it's not an issue yet, actually. I've heard some stories. I think it's coming more common. And I would suspect it's something to be aware of and to take into consideration when you when you're underwriting the risk of buying a subject to transaction. Most definitely. Well, and let's talk about that for a second. Um, <clears throat> for people that haven't been doing this for a minute, um, obviously subject to is you're buying a house subject to the existing financing. The note stays in in place in the seller's name, but you're on title now. He's talking about, of course, utilizing trust. So when ownership interest is, is changed, you're not flagging anything that necessarily is going to um, alarm interests of you know the lender or whatever else because the deed right and the mortgage note are two completely different instruments that just so happen to be tied to this uh the the, the asset right so the house well, in the scenario, we, right yeah, what we do is we put we, so like it's not bulletproof like there's nothing that's bulletproof but we we just don't want to be the low-hanging fruit basically right and ultimately there's a due on sale clause that says that if the seller if the deed gets transferred then the seller, the, the lender can accelerate the note and call it due, right? And then it's due in full. And so in that in that juncture, you'd have to <clears throat> either sell the property and pay off the note, pay off the note yourself, or uh, refinance it, right? Mm -hmm. And that is not a very desirable situation to be in to have that sort of liquidity event called due. And you know, if you've, for example, wrapped the deal, you know, or you've done like a rent to own or um, a lease option on it or something of that nature, you could get yourself in a situation where you've simultaneously got a commitment to someone with an option contract, you know, or a promise or, or a deed of trust that you've created, but you can't perform on the underlying liquidity event of the due on sale. And so <clears throat> although the land trust isn't a end all be all, it does take you out of the low hanging fruit category because there's this uh, St. Germain act that says that, you know, if you, if a seller wants to, to move a, a deed into a trust for, you know, estate planning uh, purposes, it, the, so the, the lender cannot accelerate due on sale. So we structure the trust to look like it's for estate planning. Right. So that means we, we label the trust for the address of the property so it's like, you know, one, two, two main street trust. Um, we actually file the beneficial interest in the seller's name. So on public record, it looks like it was, it was a state planning move. And then at closing, they transfer that beneficial interest. And, um, we have a trustee that's an LLC that, that we control. We typically file that LLC in a jurisdiction where it's difficult to identify the, the beneficial owner of like, uh, I don't know, Wyoming, Nevada. New Mexico, Delaware, these states are good LLC formations for the, the trustee. But, and so, but, you know, without getting too far into the weeds here, um, 
these deals can get complicated and it's important to have a team around you, a legal, a lawyer, a transaction coordinator that understand the process and can do it properly. Obviously anybody can do a subject to transaction, you know, outside of a title company even, but doing it properly with good contracts that are in place and disclosures so that the, the recourse from the seller coming back to you or, or the lender, you know, maybe exploring the idea of calling a due on sale, at least it's not easy for them. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's all great information. I want to, um, continue. So obviously everything with asset protection, it can be its whole, uh, you know, podcast by itself and everything. We could continue on that route. I actually want to take a hard left and just, um, talk about wholesale deals, whether it's cash or, uh, creative, but wholesale deals in general, uh, where do they come from? How do you find them? What's uh, the best avenues for that? Share whatever you're comfortable sharing. I know you you know, put a lot of energy and effort and infrastructure into your operation and everything, but just for the new wholesaler or wholesaler has done a couple of deals, but it's just getting going. Where, where do deals come from? Well, so deals can come from, okay, so there's, there's, a, there's a whole universe of deals, right? Or I should say properties. And I, I typically, the first way that I differentiate them, the very first layer is always, is it on the market or is it off the market, right? And then, and so if it's on the market, it's someone that's raised their hand and they said, yes, I want to sell. They've hired a realtor, you know, they put it on the market. It's obviously for sale. It's also very easy to contact the realtor. He's got to pull it up online, call the realtor. And, you know, it's not something that I do, but I know a lot of folks do the uh, on-market outreach, even for subject to deals and they find success in it. Maybe I just don't have the temperament to deal with realtors, but um, I don't go that route. It's not something that I pursue. Um, not saying a person couldn't have success in it or people don't have success in it. It's just not, it just doesn't fit me. I don't like, I just, to be honest with you, I don't like to deal with realtors. I find them to be a waste of time. And often they deals that I put together fall apart because of realtors. So I don't, I try to keep a distance from realtors for the most part. Not to say there aren't good realtors out there because there are. It's just for the most part, I find them to be less than desirable to, to deal with. Completely. Um, so anyway, you got the on market, off market. My approach is almost always off market. I don't really. I mean, if if I somehow come across a deal or something that seems interesting, I won't just discount it because it's on the market. But I don't necessarily like I'm not calling realtors and asking them if their listing is if their seller wants to sell it at a discount. So but then again, I hear that, you know, I've heard stories and tales of people finding success with that. So I do wish them all the best. Um, of course. But anyway, so, that's all, so within the off market yeah. space, um, you know, I typically then then I'm looking for, you know, right now we're basically hyper focused on doing 10 subject to transactions a month. And so generally that means that it's either going to be a seller that has low equity. Right. Or if they have equity, it's going to be a hybrid deal where like let's talk about a low equity deal first. So if it's a hundred thousand dollar house and they owe ninety five thousand there's really no way that they're going to sell that and pay a realtor and closing costs and not put money into the deal. So, you know, I might, I might reach out to them in a very a much, many different ways. It might be a ringless voicemail, a text, a letter, bang on their door. Um, you know, there's just so many different avenues to, to create a communication uh, channel. But uh, anyway, uh, so within the low equity uh, sphere, you could then stack that list with, I don't know, divorce, 
uh, pre-foreclosure, um, expired listings, uh, vacant properties, uh, and there's many others. That, and you can even stack it with multiple parameters depending on how many leads you're looking for in a given geographic area, right? And then for properties that have um, that have equity where the seller necessarily doesn't want to sell at a discount, um, you've got to structure a deal where, uh, the, for example, it's a $100,000 property and they owe 50000 on it. And, you know, you're willing to pay, I don't know, 90, right? And the, and the seller's willing to take 90. Well, you could, you could offer the seller, for example, I don't know, $10,000 in cash and the $30,000 difference. You could do a seller carry back on the note with typically 0% interest, amortized for, say, 30 years. Maybe give the seller assurance that they'd get a balloon payment in five to 10 years or something of that nature. And in that way, you're able to, to take down that property with about 10K in cash for acquisition. Uh, service the first lien note and then pay a second to the to the seller on top and that all that works often really well because you get to, to basically carry that debt at zero percent interest at zero percent it builds equity quick and um and that you know if you do put a balloon in there it's highly likely that by the time that 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 event occurs you've got enough equity to refinance or pay it off right Exactly. Exactly. So there's there's some really good things in there. So in that scenario, right, you didn't have to use your any of your own credit, right? Uh, you didn't have to use any of your own credentials. You didn't have to go qualify for a loan. The loan didn't have to be originated by a lender. So there's not those fees in there because effectively, right, when that fifty thousand dollar note that you were just talking about, uh, if I as a buyer wanted to go and buy a new place and we just did it traditional way, right? Uh, the, the seller would have had to pay off that note. That interest rate's never going to exist again, that 3% interest rate, like those don't exist anymore, right? I would have had to originate, I would have to get qualified and originate another, another loan, right? Pay origination points, realtor, all that kind of stuff. And so the, in that scenario, 10 K to the seller, whatever you got to pay to close and record it. Right. Um, you know, you're, you're, how effective you, you're being with cash and just cash on hand. If you were to go, go and buy a deal like that versus what we were just talking about with, you know, previous just regular cash deals for someone that's trying to fix and flip or whatever else, how much more effective is that cash, you know, getting into the, the deal than, than before. Right. And just, it's, it's, well, it's exponential. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends. Everything's relative, right? So some people like fix and flip, right. And those are cash deals. Well, I shouldn't say they're not always cash because you can also do a sub two on a fix and flip. Right. Um, but, um, and I, I've sold some sub two fix and flips actually. So it's, it's, it's not uncommon. It does happen. Yeah. Yeah, it does happen. Um, but <laughs> I don't personally like fix and flip. It's a big time of investment in time and energy and risk and resources. And, um, and it doesn't provision any long-term wealth creation. Uh, you know, you're not capturing any depreciation long-term. You're not developing any cash flows. Um, I, I just, I don't find it a desirable business model. Um, I do wholesale fix and flip deals. I only wholesale them. I don't buy them. Right. Um, but it, you know, it's folks make money at it. It's just, you got to be hyper-focused on it. You won't have time for anything else. Right. For sure. Um, well, and with the, the cost of lending, 
nowadays too, right? Because before you could get a fix and flip loan for, and we're, we're talking about a couple of different things. So hopefully you guys are catching on to the nuance, right? I was talking about fix and flip before I was talking about having to come up with the, let's just say 60 cents on the dollar and the cost materials. <clears throat> and then hopefully, right, that you're, you're, you're penciling out, but this scenario is a little bit different, but the cost of lending just on a typical private money, hard money loan has changed obviously recently too, even, even though it's not a, it is not a conventional mortgage, right? Where it's strictly based on the prime rate and it's only being originated out of, you know, these like select conventional style lenders, even if it's still private money, it used to be seven and 8%. People could go get, you know, the materials costs and stuff like that. They go get private money to go and, and do that. Now we're looking at, you know, 12, you know, 14, 15%. And, you know, that's hopefully if you have enough spread there, in between to actually make some money, but I'm, I'm with you. It's, it, it can be, it can well, be great. It can be a real feast and famine type of business too. But, well, I yeah. would say it's like, you know, it's a very cyclical niche of business, right? You, you really want to be doing fix and flips on the upward trajectory of a market cycle. So fix and flips worked really good, you know, from 2011 till just recently, right? Actually just this year, I'd say it was kind of the end of, what I think is what has been a nice golden time for fix and flipping. Right. But that's that window has come to an end and things are changing and the market's shifting. And so like you could go buy a house, for example, a hundred thousand dollar house, $50,000, put 20,000 into it and sell it for a hundred thousand. But it, that's in a market that's like nice and hot and where there's buyers that are actively, you know, engaging and buying properties. I think that, that type of a market is coming to an end right now. And so I wouldn't consider buying any, putting cash into any fix and flip opportunities right now, unless it's a, a fix and hold, right? Like a fix and rent or fix and whatever your exit strategy is, fix and seller finance, um, but not fix and flip. Hmm. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing to, not that this can't be done. And I'm, again, there's always outliers. It's just not a, in general, a, something that's a, of right. great interest to me at least. Absolutely. And, and I think this is a really good segue to, to, to shift to, um, you know, what we do look for, right. Uh, especially with co-living, you know, that's kind of the, the premise of this whole thing. We want to focus on wholesaling, um, in this particular, uh, podcast. Uh, but I, I'd love to shift more into the buy box and how that has changed. What specifically, we're looking for um, how much cash we're looking to, you know, needing to come up with to get into these deals and, you know, shift to more what what it looks like as a wholesaler that, that wants to put their focus into co-living because they see the opportunity like we do. Yeah. Well, before we start, I'd like to point out that I don't live in a box. Right. And so I don't have a buy box there. I can't define the buy box. I mean, other than in general. Right. A general idea of what it is, um, because every deal is different, right? If you have a deal where you get an equity piece, right? You might be willing to pay a higher entry fee. If you have a deal where it has a super low interest rate and it's in perfect condition, you might be, you might be willing to pay a higher entry fee. If you have a deal that has a little bit higher interest rate and it's got no equity, well, you better be buying that thing for very little down, right? So it's like levers being pulled on, you know, the 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 entry fee, the interest rate, um, uh, the condition of the property, that how old it is, how much it will cash flow, um, 
And so like, there's no like set parameter on what that means. I hear a lot of people say, I only buy subject to properties with 10% entry, right? I say, well, okay, well, what if I bring you a, a, a subject to deal that's got 25% in equity? All right. Like, would you pay 10% for a property that has zero in equity, but you won't pay 15% for one that has 25%, right? And so I think that's what it's just like when you when you mentioned fix and flipping at the 70 cents on the dollar buy box. That's not like a, if you're going to do deals and look at deals for what they truly are, you have to look at the deal, right? The whole deal. And don't put yourself in a box on what that means. And so like, you know, oftentimes, you know, uh, there's equity in it. The interest rates are different. The condition is different. How old it is is different. How much it will cash flow, how easy, how easy the exit strategy is. Let me give some examples. I have a deal right now in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, the ARV on it's 165,000, right? And it has, I have a contract for it for um, 130,000. So it has has some equity in it. This property has a brand new roof on it. It's recently been made ready for a rental um, and it's basically rent ready. It's a three bedroom, two bath. And um, it, the seller has $50,000 in debt. And so a lot of folks would say, well, hell, there's no way you're going to do a subject to deal on that. Well, I actually just put a deal together like 48 hours ago and had a contract signed. And the way that I structured that deal is it's got a first lien uh, a mortgage for 50000 The PITI payment on that is uh, $522 a month. So I structured with the seller where I would give him $20,000 down, right? And it before we talk about the ratios, I'm going to come back to that $20,000 down in cash. And then the difference of that equity, which is the 50, the difference of 130 to 50, which is $80,000. That's 60,000 that's left after the $20,000 now payment. There's $60,000 that I did seller financing for where we do a payment for $500 a month. Right. And then there's going to be a five-year balloon. So over five years, um, I'll pay $500 a month or $30,000 over five years. Uh, um, I mean, is that right? No, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's $30,000 over five years. And then um, at the end of that five years, there's a, there's a, um, a balloon for 5,000 or for $30,000. So the total payment is $1,022. The house rents for $1,350 a month. It's worth 165,000. The entry fee is $20,000. Well, most people would say, well, hell, 20,000 of, of, uh, let's say of the ARV of 165 is like what, uh, 15%, right? And so that's well above a lot of these people, the folks buy box, but, but look, but, but hear me out. This property has equity in it. It has $35,000 in equity in it. It has a seller carry back at 0%. That means every payment you make is going directly to principal, Right. You're creating equity with equity that's already there. It's a property that cash flows a long-term rental. It also has no HOA, right? So you could build that out to six or seven bedrooms and do a co-living deal in it. And so, you know, that deal to me sounds better than the next deal I'm going to talk to you about that has a very low entry fee, right? But I think just real quick there, just to um, give you a second. So I, I think that there's, some really good points in there too, right? So if you're usually like, hey, this is my buy box. I don't want to be less than 10% in or $30,000 into a deal or whatever it is. 
um, you know, what, what we're really what we're really looking at, right, is how much cash should I put in? How do I back out? What is my cash on cash return, right? And then if you back out a little bit further and you add the principal pay down and, and equity in that scenario, let's say your your exit strategy, right, is to go sell in five years, you need to look at your total IRR, right? And so that's that's effectively what you're getting into is like, that's right. okay. Um, maybe, maybe your cash on cash was, you know, 18% instead of 20% this time around, but your IRR was 40% whenever you, you know, at the end of the right. day, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that like, you know, with, when you look at the whole deal, it, everything comes to light on, on the numbers. And so I like that deal. Like, I really like that deal. That's, that's, that's a high entry, but I like the deal. I like the idea. I like it's a it's a little three two and it's it cash flows well. You build equity quick at that zero percent seller carry back. Uh, it's a rent by room. It'll be a cash flowing beast because it's got a thousand dollar piti and it'll it'll gross thirty six hundred a month as a rent by room, right? So you could you could probably net out you know two thousand dollars a month after electricity and lawn maintenance and and such. And so you know. $2,000 a month, you'll have $100,000 in the bank that you've made in five years, right? In cash flows. Um, and at that point, you'll have a property that, that is worth, or that it's, well, let's say it's worth the same, 165000 It hasn't changed in value. You'll owe 100000 on it. So you'll have a property that you have a 50 cents on the dollar debt on that's cash flowing $25,000 a year. Right. And so mm -hmm. to me, that's a good deal, but it doesn't fit the buy box for some people. They, they prefer to right. buy the next deal that right. I'm going to talk to you about. And here's the point I'm trying to make. So here's another deal. It's in Austin. Right. And I am getting a contract signed on this one, hopefully tomorrow. The ARV on it's 385,000. Right. And so the um, the payoff on the on the mortgage is. 350,000. I got a deal where I give $10,000 to seller. Okay. It's only 3% interest, as I recall, 3.125, something like that. But here's the kicker. The PITI is $2,800 a month because it's been, the, the tax appraisal has been jacked up and the taxes got moved up. It was like a 2,200 PITI. The tax, the, the Travis County Appraisal District in near Austin jacked the prices up and their payment went up $400 or more than that, like $500 because of taxes, right? And so this, the seller is like income constrained, getting ready to retire, can't afford the payment, right? And also the payment is above the long-term rental rate. Twenty Because this house will probably rent for $2,500 a month, right? So it's negative cash flow as, in, as a long-term rental. And how many bedrooms? You, it's three bedroom, two bath with an office. New construction. Okay. New construction. Does it have a garage? Has a garage. Yeah. Does it have an HOA? What? Uh, has an HOA. Yeah, it has okay. an HOA. That's yeah, fine. HOA. You can work with that. Yeah, HOA. But it's got a garage. It's got a. It's got an office that can be converted. So it's an easy uh, five or six two, right? Easily five. And actually, so in in Austin, you could probably rent those rooms out for nine hundred or a thousand for the regular bedrooms. You could probably get twelve hundred or thirteen hundred for the garage conversion, and another same for the master, right? So you're probably going to get 
5,000 gross on that. And that sounds good, but hear me out because everybody would have want to bought this deal over the other deal I mentioned. Right. And so after you pay lawn maintenance, right. After you pay the electricity and, um, you know, expenses to maintain that situation and assuming you get something close to a hundred percent occupancy, let's say 95%, you're probably only going to, you're probably only going to, I mean, from 2,800 to 5,000, you've got 2,200. So you might get 1500 in cash flow, right? Yeah. Something like that. But give or take. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But that, but the deal basically has no equity, right? Very little, like, like a couple percentage points relative to the ARV. And so in five years, you'll have made, um, uh, you know, say, say you make 1500, that's 18K a year. In five years, you might have 75K in cash flows you've built. That's less cash flow than you got. And you're going to have very little equity, right? At that point. I mean, you're going to build a little bit of equity, assuming the, the price stays the same, right? I, I would say that Austin's a good market, but it's also kind of been elevated and has more chance to fall than a place like Shreveport, Louisiana. And so um, I would prefer the Shreveport, Louisiana deal because of the 0% seller carryback and the fact that in five years, I own property at 50 cents on the dollar. I think most folks would prefer to give the low entry and, you know, I think this is my point. This is the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. And not, not all things are are equal, right? You have to look at the whole deal, all aspects of it, the HOA, especially if you're looking at co-living, right? So the HOA, the one in in, in Louisiana doesn't have an HOA. There is a risk factor with the HOA that we have to be aware of. Um, One of the advantages of this Austin deal that I've mentioned is it's newer construction, right? So it's going to probably have less maintenance. Um, But you know, all things being equal, these are the different things that you can look at when you're buying a deal. But it's interesting that you could buy that deal. Like, say I charged a 10,000 assignment, you'd buy it from me for 20, right? Uh, plus closing costs, plus transaction coordination fees. But let's call it 24,000 or something like that, 23,000. Um, or the the uh, the deal in uh, uh, Louisiana, say I charged, I'm probably going to charge a, $9,000 on that deal and it's $29,000, you will pay $32,000 or $33,000 total to buy that deal. Um, Can but I, that deal has a lot of equity in it. That's like, I mean, shit, at $130,000, that's mm-hmm. like, what is that? 20, 20 almost 20, 25% of the deal in equity. As can, it can, is. I tell you, can I give you the, the uh, where I would probably look at buying personally, you know, Austin versus Shreveport, all things considered with what you're saying. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a couple of pieces to consider when I'm looking at it too, is yes, the taxes have gone up. Um, you can't advocate and actually work in, in Austin. We'll come to the Austin deal. Yes. Um, you can't advocate for sure to, um, you know, to, you know, bring them down. Nothing's guaranteed, of course, in that scenario. Yeah. You could probably be successful yeah. actually in that. I would success I would suggest that that is highly likely on that deal. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. Well, and then obviously Austin. I mean, we all know Austin is like a huge growing market. And so they're not making any more real estate there. So that's that's very, very appealing. I like the low entry fee. Um, and I like that I feel like I can rely on some level of consistency on the insurance. 
on a deal like the Austin deal versus what, what I have concerns about sometimes with like Louisiana. And granted, my, my investors love Texas, right? My investors love the places I'm already in. I'm, there's some great deals in Louisiana. Just, you know, what folks I've worked yeah. with, we just haven't been to Louisiana. Uh, but yeah, my I'm actually starting is, to do more work in, I'm starting to do more marketing outreach in Louisiana. But yeah, go ahead. I'm listening. Yep. But the, but the point, point being is when you look at places like certain places in Louisiana, right? Or Florida, um, as you guys have probably been paying attention to the news, um, you know, a lot of insurance companies are reassessing their book of business when it comes to what they have out there and the total replacement value for how much cash they have on hand and for in their pants. And they're, they're actually re, uh, readjusting effectively. Let's say uh, the storm came into to Florida, for example, they would actually recalibrate their entire book of business to say, hey, your premium was $4,500 a year now is eight grand a year, maybe a slightly extreme example, uh, but they're coming back and people are having to uh, cancel those insurance premiums. And so I would just say there's probably two, two scenarios, you know, if that's something that we're looking at uh, when it comes to what's going to potentially eat up some of that cash flow, but two things to look at would just be, um, you know, what area is it in? Is it going to go up? Do you have a backup plan or maybe do you have an umbrella policy where you can, essentially get insurance that covers, you know, different areas where you're not just subject to um, necessarily the whims of the insurance companies in those areas. Because again, they take, you know, the extreme examples of the coasts, you know, uh, houses being, you know, spun up and, you know, like basically like just uh, destroyed and they basically take a blanket and they go ahead and actually pass on the entire insurance to everything else. So that's neither here nor there for now but while we're talking about kind of those two different things of taxes and insurance eating up your cash flows i just thought that i would, I would bring that up for example on why i like i like being specific with certain geography just because i don't know you know i don't know you know we can get those things adjusted or whatever else but have you have you thought of considered those things in florida or well, Louisiana I think yet? That, like if i was a guy that was living in louisiana for example i would prefer the louisiana deal over the texas deal right but if both the deals were both in the same situation, right? I mean, in the same geographic location, notwithstanding the geography, let's put it that way. Just looking at it from the deal and the numbers. Um, like, in other words, if both deals were in Austin or if both deals were in Shreveport, um, I'd take the smaller one with the higher entry. Uh, it cash flow is the same. It's got equity in it. It's, you know, it's, it's another $10,000, but it's it's the, the at the end of the day you're going to own a property for 50 cents on the dollar in five years completely it's probably not going to be yeah and so your irr is probably much better on the, the louisiana yeah. deal for sure and for those of you not familiar irr is just internal rate of return so what's the total amount of return you know that you're getting over the course of that period right yeah but you know to your, more to your point um mark i mean Austin's a, a beautiful place. It's it's got a very clean, nice city, and I like Austin a lot. I live in San Antonio, so I know Austin. Um, and you know, I guess if I was looking at it from my perspective, I'd probably just me where I live and the, and the geography of the deals. I'd probably also buy the Austin deal over the Shreveport deal, but that's just a function of like them being where they are. If they were both in Austin or both in Shreveport, I I think is my was kind of my, my definitely. Point. Yeah. But you make a very good you make a very good point with it, looking at insurance, looking at um, taxes. I'll tell you, I've been on the phone with quite a few sellers throughout Texas lately, in Houston and Austin and Dallas, where and even oh no, San Antonio as well, where there's some neighborhoods that the 
the cat appraisal district has really jacked up the prices and it's causing havoc. I mean, there's people falling into foreclosure because of it. There's people selling like entire, like uh, in this neighborhood that I'm mentioning. And I guess this is part of what I'm considering is that, you know, if, if it's her having this problem, there's probably her whole neighborhood is looking at the same thing. Right. And so, you know, it, I'm going to probably be targeting that neighborhood, but, um, and not to, but anyway, uh, th those situations can be fixed. The tax situation, um, you might have to carry that payment for another. I mean, even if you fixed it, it wouldn't be readjusted till next year. Right. But it is, there is potential to create some more room on that payment. Like say you could probably move three or $400 a month down to 25 or $2,400 a month PITI. Definitely. Which would be much more desirable. Well, in um, a lot of those, a lot of those scenarios too, um, when, I mean, exactly what you were saying before, it's like, okay, you have either a high interest rate or you have no equity and I'm assuming <clears throat> a tax burden in this scenario. I can deal with all of those things, but I can't deal with all of those things and simultaneously give you a ton of money down. I almost feel like you should be paying me in that scenario, right? Not you, but the, the seller. Yeah, yeah right? no, I get it. Well, and that's yeah. why I only give the, the seller's only getting 10 grand and it was, you know, I feel like that was a generous number. Um, but Just, yeah, she's only getting yeah. 10K. Well, on a $375,000 house, $10,000 is not the same as $10,000 on a $160,000 house, right? So, um, I mean, $10,000 is literally like, what is it? Like 2% or something of that deal. Yeah, and they're, they're just, I mean, they're just thrilled that they're not having to write a check, you know, at closing ultimately. Well, that, you know, that, and that's the big value proposition that I made to her because I said, you know, if you truly want to move and you truly can't pay this note, well, let's look at your options. And so, you know, have you, have you talked to a realtor? And she said, no, I happen to know she did because she was an expired listing. That's why I contacted her. But anyway, she had talked to a realtor and she gave me a really disapproved story of her experience. She didn't, the realtor didn't do her job, didn't communicate the situation, brought sellers to the table where she had to put cash on the table. And she says, I'm not putting cash into a deal to sell my house. And the realtor didn't explain that to me when she put the listing price up that if I sell at this listing price, I've got to put money into the deal. She failed to tell the seller that. Right. And so um, when it, <laughs> when it, real quick, when it comes to working with a realtor or anybody you're going to work with, you can go, do I trust this person? Right. And that can come from intent. Right. Do they have my best interest in mind? And that can also come from, does this person know what the hell they're doing? Are they competent? And, and right? It can be competent. or incompetence. Uh, I find both to be quite prevalent and endemic within realtors. Right. And not to say that there's not good realtors out there. I'm just saying that I don't have the temperament to deal with 98% of them. And I know that, um, some people find success calling realtors. I think that that's great. I think it's also a space that's extremely saturated and will become more and more. So the barrier for entry to do that is almost zero. All you need is a cell phone and a, you know, you don't even need anything. All you need is a cell phone. You don't even put any money into it. So I think everybody and their brothers can be calling realtors looking for sub two deals. If you know, so I, well, and that's, that's some, yeah, just to add on to what you're saying, that's perfect. Um, because I, my thing is, is like, I recognize that most realtors don't, they, they have their own game. Everything's on market. It's conventional products. It's all of this, right? As far as loan products is concerned. What, the point I wanted to add on to it uh, is that they're playing their own game. I think that if you're going to work with realtors, you treat them like a, a wholesaler, a bird dog, basically a finder's fee is effectively in order. 
um, for a, for for a realtor, and that's fine. I'm I'm good with that all day. You know, my my thing is, it's like once you're if you're a realtor and you're in it, and you have an offer that finally makes sense for your seller for that listing that's been sitting forever, how about not getting too involved with trying to educate the uh, this the seller on what you don't know anything about? You know, how about just being quiet, sitting on the sidelines letting us let you get paid. We have a transaction coordinator, closing attorney. We have all the things, you know, so, you know, we're not pulling wool over anybody's eyes, but they haven't been trained to talk to their, their sellers, right. About terms, what this looks like, what the actual costs are of selling. Yeah. The, um, getting deals across the finish line with realtors is a highly risky proposition. Um, and I speak from experience, right? I, it's not, again, I've, I've wholesaled deals on the MLS that, that are on the MLS, not necessarily because I was looking for them on the MLS, but somehow they came on my radar and happened to be on the MLS. Right. In most instances I do negotiate where the realtor reduces their commission. Right. Um, and then I cut a deal with the seller and, and we move forward to contract. I mean, to close. Um, but I've had a large proportion of those deals fall through. And for the most part, it's where the realtor is trying to act as some sort of advisor. Uh, to the seller yet has no real conceptual understanding of what they're advising. Um, and it's, it's quite, well, it, it just is what it is. Right. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that I've run into and I don't have any power over that and I don't have any control over that. Um, and so, and then oftentimes the other, my other thing I dislike about listed properties is the realtor doesn't want to let me communicate directly with the seller. They want to maintain that intermediary status. And so I don't get any feel for the seller in that scenario. And I, I don't get any like, like, is this a good seller to be, even be buying a property sub two from, you know, and has the whole thing been communicated properly? Like that's another problem that I have with listed properties. But again, it's not, you're right. It's not that I wouldn't look at a deal that's listed on the MLS. I would just, I just proceed with caution. Right. A hundred percent. And I mean, I'm even looking at, deals up here in Colorado right now. And I was telling you an example of <clears throat> me just going and looking at a property. I have to get in touch with the realtor because the realtor is one that's listed it, whatever else. But you know, the idea is that I'm, I am trying to give them something they can present to the, uh, an offer to the, the seller and ideally not mess it up. Um, and then also communicating the fact that just because I'm looking at your listing, bro, <laughs> doesn't mean that I'm, you're my buyer's agent. I didn't sign a buyer agency agreement with yeah. you. So like quit trying to double in this deal. I'm trying to be low cash in this deal because I realize that the seller's in X amount of situ you know, whatever situation I'm trying to be low cash and you're sitting here trying to get a 7% commission when I'm unrepresented. I don't have to give you the other two and a half or 3%. It's like you're basically being a greedy bastard <laughs> at that point and you're getting in the way effectively. Yeah. Well, it may be some people try to I, I mean, let the realtor double dip. But the first thing I always tell the realtor is I'm not represented and, and I'll be my own agent. Right. So I don't need you to draw a contract. I'll draw a contract. I'll handle all the documents. Just get out of the way, really, and take your commission. And usually that means, you know, 3% or less. Right. Um, and usually if it's a tight deal, I usually just get, give them a flat fee, like 2,500 bucks or five 5,000 bucks, depending on the deal. Right. Absolutely. Well, and, and but the other part of that is most of these realtors have no clue how to get these deals to the finish line. And I'm bringing all my resources to make it happen. Transaction coordination. I've got to communicate with the seller. This deal would have gone away if 
it weren't for someone that, that could deal with it. So, I mean, there's all that. But one thing I will say is that, you know, that the idea of contacting on market properties is it's not a secret. And there and the barrier for entry to do it is very low, almost zero. So um, just proceed with caution if you think that's going to have any staying power as a as a marketing proposition from a wholesaling perspective. Right now, if you're if you're just a buyer and somebody brings you a deal, maybe a wholesaler or a realtor. Sure. Look at it and maybe look at it on a regular basis. Um, but it, as a, from a wholesaler's perspective, I don't think it's something that's going to have any longevity to it. It might have been working for like the last six months or year to some extent. But uh, I, I've heard stories of these realtors. Um, I think you have to read where they're just getting hounded day in and day out from other buyers and wholesalers. And they, the first thing they do when they pick up the phone is no subject to deal. <laughs> like that's like the first words out of their mouth. Right. Which they just learned that term last week. So that's just really nice. Yeah. <laughs> they actually know, yeah, know how to say that. Yeah. Well, they may not even know what it means. They just know they don't want to do it. Right. Right. Uh, and they, they basically don't know how it's actually a win-win for everybody in that scenario. They think that, you know, if, if I don't know about something, people, people tend to fear, what they don't understand, right? If I don't know about something, then that must be risky. Well, it's risky to you because you're ignorant. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's risky until it's not, until you really actually, not you, Frank, but you well, realtor. I mean, at, at the end of the day, yeah. subject two is not for every seller, right? Yeah. It's not. And, and a seller that's going on the MLS is looking for kind of a market traditional deal. They're not looking for a distressed sale deal, right? And so for the most part, and so like all like you know all the properties that we deal with there's distress there's a divorce there's a foreclosure there's um, you know a, a, they got to move for a job there's some sort of distress to compel them because they have a problem they need it solved they need it solved now we have a solution that's that's the exchange mm -hmm. if there's no pain if there's no problem then there's no need for the subject to solution right because at the end of the day there is you know negative consequences of of a seller selling a property subject to isn't there right there's more risk that they assume right that's right yeah is if their buyer doesn't perform which you yeah. know if, if i was a realtor really trying to educate my buyer or my my seller in that scenario i would just say you uh you can absolutely do it it is a solution um uh, but here's the things that i would do to maybe vet the buyer a little bit or whatever else you know just to make sure they were protected and you know ensure that those payments are being made ultimately right right yeah well, and, you know, we've started, I've, I get that often. I'm on the phone with sellers all day long and I always tell them, and I, it's not something I do every time, but if they're bringing it up and it's an issue, we put together a performance deed that basically outlines that if we don't make the payments or keep the property in good shape or make the, keep the insurance current, then they can basically foreclose on the property and take the deed back. And that's, that's, that's a it. way we can put contractual, you know, tie in a contractual obligation that we're going to meet the parameters that we've set forth. Right. Absolutely. Well, I know we've got just five minutes left here. Um, obviously we could continue talking about, you know, all these kind of nuanced things uh, for, you know, forever. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to tie in or want people in like, let's just say people that are wholesalers in the group uh, to be aware of, to be thinking about um, with this? I mean, if you're a novice or, or beginning wholesaler, the, my, you know, it, it, the first thing that I always say is like, 
you just got to put in the reps, right? You just got to do it, do get the, get the grind in. And the, one of the biggest things I say is to not get involved in any emotional roller coaster because the deal is going good or bad to try to keep an even keel with your emotions so that, um, so that you can do that grind day in and day out, regardless of how good or bad a given deals going. And that's the key to gaining kind of consistent deal flow, because if you have a good deal going on, it's easy to keep hustling. Things are good. Deals inevitably will have fall apart, go sideways, have problems, not be what you thought they were. And then, you know, you wake up the next day, you're all bummed out. Maybe you don't get on the phone. You don't do your, your work. And that just turns into a negative cycle, a feedback loop of negativity. And so, um, I would say that it's really important to keep an even keel for your emotions, right? To not get too out of whack in terms of how good or bad things are going and to make, and to focus on just waking up and doing those reps every day. I love it. I love it. So what I'm hearing is, uh, is a you need to be willing to do the unsexy things for an inordinate amount of time. Right. And, and B it's mindset, you know, effectively after that. Is that right? Yeah. Mindset, work ethic, um, and, and, uh, and, and learn like just, it, I mean, mindset and work ethic is your, is you're, you're all, you're basically there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, excellent. Well, uh, yeah, I think we covered a lot of great content, uh, today. Um, yeah, we'll, we will be back this time, uh, next week for, um, what, what we're going to dive into most likely we'll, we'll see if it's next week or the week after is actually shifting it to more of the operational side of things and together, you know, obviously we have buying deals creatively uh, through through wholesaling, and then we obviously have operating it as co-living rentals. So uh, that's the idea as far as the the upcoming agenda. I'm sure in the in the coming weeks after that, we'll, we'll get somebody in here talking more around some of the nuances that we were talking about with uh, transaction coordination, entity formation, things like that. Uh, but that'll be for another day, just to kind of give you a bit of a preview there. Uh, but yeah, with that, thanks everybody for their time and we will, uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch in the chat here. Feel free to jump in the group and, you know, introduce yourself. All right. Thanks guys.